This is an ABC podcast. When police are called out to a domestic violence incident, do their body-worn cameras always capture an accurate and complete record of what's taking place? Body-worn camera footage is probably just as good as the training that the police officers are receiving when it comes to understanding the complexity of domestic violence. The most common concern among victim survivors was the potential for body-worn cameras to lead to the misidentification of the primary aggressor. It's not the silver bullet. It never has been the magical panacea that's going to solve everything. But it does provide those officers and it does provide victims with another significant evidence source that can support or detract in some instances from the case at court. And if we treat it in that way and we wrap around all the other support around the victim that we should be doing, then we have a really powerful case that supports a victim in all the right ways. Soon-to-be-published research suggests that the impact of police body-worn cameras in domestic violence call-outs are very complex. Hi, Damien Carrick with you. This is The Law Report. In recent years, body-worn cameras have been rolled out across every state and territory police force. Julie Sarkozy is Director of Law Reform and Education with the Queensland Women's Legal Service. She says there's no question that these cameras often generate important evidence that helps substantiate domestic violence allegations. There is an account taken at the time of what is occurring when the police arrive. And sometimes women are actually very traumatised and the fact that they don't need to say what happened to them again and again and again can actually be really instrumental in their ongoing participation in the legal system because they know they don't have to keep retelling their story. It also is strong evidence often in court proceedings where, say, police or a woman are seeking a domestic violence or a restraining order, or indeed if there are criminal charges for breach of one of those orders or or for an assault? Uh, Certainly. And in relation to to capturing that incident or capturing what is happening at that time, for example, broken items or broken furniture, somebody having injuries on them, somebody's level of distress – And equally, somebody's aggressiveness or denial or intoxication, all of those can be captured and are very compelling when it comes to actually applying for an order and, in fact, are compelling to the person who might oppose an order. And then the police can say, well, look, before you actually oppose it, have a look at this body-worn camera footage and hopefully that person will reconsider and maybe concede to the order or or consent to the order or, or plead guilty. I'm wondering, too, perpetrators can present very uh, well in court, you know, come in a suit and tie and appear to be very, very calm and very, very cogent. And, you know, if you're presenting that perspective or, or that image to, to a magistrate or to a court, this is very important evidence to, to counterbalance that. It certainly is. So if you've got video footage of, let's say, for example, someone slightly intoxicated, very aggressive, very domineering, very hostile and agitated. However, that person in the clear light of day has arrived in court with their lawyer, very well dressed and very well put together, then it actually does provide the magistrate 
with this is actually what really happened and this is how this person presents to his partner, to the police, during a time where allegations about domestic violence have been raised, as opposed to in a courtroom, in the middle of the day, with a lawyer. If you're a victim of a domestic violence assault, you'll be in shock, you might be in pain, you might be injured, um, you might be concerned about your children. You're not necessarily going to be thinking about what's going on and, and be able to recall it for the purposes of a police statement or, or, or evidence in court. And, and again, so for those reasons, it's very, very important. Well, look, there is a lot of very credible research and evidence to suggest that the way that trauma is laid down as a memory is quite different to the way that our other memories are formed. And in fact, trauma memories are often not um, chronological, that they're scattered and that we might even um, not remember certain things as a ego defence. So all of those things considered, if there is body-worn camera footage of what has happened directly after it has happened, then that, of course, does put the aggrieved in a better circumstance in relation to her not having to retell and remember in a way that is usually what's expected in evidence, which is chronological, coherent, this happened and then this happened and then this happened. So it does sidestep that difficulty. Can it also show something that perhaps doesn't represent the full picture? I'm wondering... When there is violence, sometimes there is women defend themselves and, you know, no doubt sometimes that they are also in smaller number of cases that they are also the perpetrator or the primary perpetrator. But more generally, they can also be defending themselves and perhaps body-worn camera footage can show that as opposed to the, the, the actual the lead-up to that. And that's a very, very big concern and that is already happening without body-worn camera footage. So what we find is is that there is a significant proportion of people who are being misidentified as the primary aggressor in a relationship. And so what that means is that there's a mistake that's been made and that mistake actually does occur when police turn up they turn up to an incident and they make that very superficial analysis or risk assessment. And they say, oh, that person over there is hysterical, is screaming, is swearing. We can smell alcohol on her breath. But this person who is talking to us is really calm, has just told us what had happened and what happened was that she hit him. And what we find in those circumstances is, is that the police will take out a domestic violence order against her, even though it, there could have been a history of years of coercive control, years of other forms of domestic violence that are not being captured in that moment. And certainly the person who's in control of that story or who, who is managing the image of that incident is not providing that full account to the police. So they are going on what he says and they are saying that's the person who's the aggressor, this is the person who needs protecting. And frankly, body-worn camera footage will not 
help with that if police stay the same in terms of their training and their understanding and engagement in domestic violence and the dynamics of domestic violence then the same mistakes will just happen but we'll have body-worn camera footage of that and in fact that will actually mean that victims themselves are more likely to consent to orders or be found to be the primary aggressor because there will be this can I say, very unflattering footage being um, shown of them in court where they might have been acting protectively, they might have been acting in a self-defence, they might have been acting because they've just been pushed to the limit and they've acted very quickly and there might be superficial injuries, but it doesn't tell the story of the dynamics of the relationship. Julie Sarkozy, lawyer with the Queensland Women's Legal Service. Darren Henstock works with consulting firm KPMG. A former WA police inspector, he was the project director for the Evidence-Based Policing Division and from 2018 to 2020 led the rollout of police body-worn cameras in WA. We need to treat body-worn video as another evidential aspect of a case. It's not the silver bullet. It never has been the magical panacea that's going to solve everything as it, as it was once claimed. But it does provide those officers and it does provide victims with another significant evidence source that can support or detract for, in some instances from from the case of court. And if we, if we treat it in that way and we, we wrap around all the other support around the victim that we should be doing, then we have a really powerful case that supports a victim in all the right ways. And do police have to disclose that they are wearing body-worn cameras and are recording in these contexts or in, in other contexts? It varies across the, uh, the states, but invariably all officers are, are advised in their training that they should make people aware that they are recording so that everyone understands what, what the procedure is. So it's not, a, certainly in WA, it's not a, a compulsory thing because obviously things happen and things happen quickly, but they, they are trained that they should at all times try and give a warning that, uh, that they are recording and that the recording is being made to protect both themselves and the, and the person they're talking to. Drilling down into to, um, family violence call-outs, what are the benefits of body-worn camera footage? It's probably a, somewhat like um, a picture paints a, a thousand words and, and what an officer can describe in a statement or verbally sometime after the incident is a lot different to what a full video in, in HD quality can, can often show. That gives uh, a jury or gives a... Uh, I call a significant understanding of the whole situation. Well, let's talk about some of the impacts of body-worn camera footage. I'm wondering, can it lead to a de-escalation if people know that they are being filmed or in the heat of the moment, in the heat of these moments, really body-worn camera footage or not, it's not really going to impact on the way maybe an aggressor might be acting? Body-worn cameras and, and cameras, CCTV and that, all that in general, work on something called deterrence theory. So unless that person actually recognises that the camera is on and that they are being recorded, then that's the only time you're going to get someone change their behaviour and, and, and de-escalate. Now, that does happen and that has been shown to happen. And, and, and for part of that, one of those reasons why officers give that warning that they're recording is to draw light to the fact that they, they're wearing cameras. The cameras in, in all the jurisdictions that I've assisted and supported body-worn video deplo deployments 
or maintain the cameras with the lights and the noises that come from them when they're recording. So that, again, draws attention to the camera and then that then impacts on that deterrence theory starting to take effect on a, on an offender and, and everyone else in, in the scenario. If someone is impacted by drugs or alcohol and therefore is struggling to make an informed decision or, or just got to a point of anger or uh, aggression that makes no difference to them at all and there are points where people can can reach that, then the cameras no, make no difference. Mm. Researchers and, and lawyers say sometimes body-worn cameras don't show the full picture. So so the, the footage might, for instance, show a woman who might be acting in self-defence, triggered, acting out a survival response, and they might be mistaken in this footage as the primary aggressor. Are these kinds of um, dangers, would you acknowledge these kinds of dangers from this kind of footage? Yeah, Obviously, video footage is only as good as the time that that officer arrived and the perspective that officer has. You would seek to believe that there's going to be more than one officer at the scene, so you're going to get multiple directions of that uh, that video being recorded, um, so you can see different positions of, of, of what's occurring. But if that officer comes in and then that victim then sees that there's an officer there in support of them, that, that their behaviour sometimes changes and they you, you see the wrong side and they, they feel relieved and, and then they become more aggressive from what has originally happened. And so that can easily be recorded. And again, it's, it's understanding body-worn video. It's understanding the time at which it was turned on. It's understanding the situation when it was turned on and the, and the complex situation that it, it's recording. But at the end of the day, it's a better source of evidence and information than an officer's recollection or a, a victim or offender's re- recollection who are experience significant stress and, and, and don't necessarily capture everything in, in what they they remember during uh, writing a statement or indeed presenting evidence to court. So again, make sure you understand what the video is recording. Make sure you understand there's a wider picture and it, and it provides part of that picture, but it still provides valuable insight into what's going on. Former WA Police Inspector Darren Henstock, Deakin University criminologist Dr Mary Iliadis, leads a team that researches how police use body-worn cameras in domestic violence call-outs. In 2020, the team surveyed hundreds of police officers in Queensland and WA. Their latest soon-to-be-published research is a nationwide survey of 119 domestic violence victims and 15 in-depth interviews with survivors. Speaking exclusively to The Law Report, Mary Iliadis says those interviews and surveys reveal fears that camera footage can be misleading. One victim survivor in our survey reported not all domestic violence is visible and the victim can be mistaken as the abuser in these moments when they are triggered and acting out of survival responses. The body-worn camera footage is then used as evidence and it does not show the full extent of the emotional, verbal, financial or control and manipulation that occurs within the context of that relationship. But people might think, great, fantastic, we've got footage of what's taking place um, inside a, a family home or in a relationship. You're suggesting that some of the people who uh, you spoke to or, or filled out your surveys suggested that it was more complicated than that. 
Absolutely, Damien. We had another victim survivor report that they were often painted as a neurotic female, as someone who was paranoid, overreacting, and they were highly concerned that this would be misinterpreted. Another survivor in our study also claimed that because they weren't acting as expected, that is, they weren't calm and rational during the incident, they were highly concerned about how this footage would then subsequently be used against them in court. What do you mean against them in court? Uh, used by the defence if there were, say, assault charges against the, the, the perpetrator? It could be used in that way or it could be that an intervention order would be placed on the victim survivor as opposed to the respondent or the perpetrator. You also found in your study that that um, body-worn cameras or, or some, some of the people you spoke to or who, who answered your survey uh, said that... Uh, you know, this is a very, very traumatic time and um, body-worn cameras can make people feel anxious and embarrassed. You know, they're in, in, an incredibly vulnerable point in time if, you know, they've just been assaulted and they might be injured. Um, there are a whole lot of reasons why they might not want to have a camera footage of them at that point in time. Absolutely. So we found this in both our survey and interviews. We found that the overwhelming number of people we spoke to actually reported feeling either humiliated, anxious or upset when the body-worn camera was present. For instance, one participant claimed that trying to report what's happened to you when you're in pain, both emotionally and physically, is anxiety-inducing and inappropriate when medical care is actually required at that time. Another victim stated that they were worried about how other victims would feel when being recorded and if they will then call police again, knowing that there is now a video of them at their darkest point in time. Now, moving away from your recent and yet to be published research involving uh, survivors, you've also spoken to, and you alluded to it earlier, surveys that you've done with uh, police officers in Queensland and in WA. What were the main findings of the survey? There, there was a high level of support amongst police officers for, for the use of body-worn cameras in family violence events, weren't there? That's right. There was a high level of support for the use of body-worn cameras and we found in particular that police often spoke about the benefits as relating to the accurate, unbiased and independent account of an incident that body-worn camera footage can provide. They also felt that it provides evidence of all parties involved, including the accused person, the aggrieved, and really enables them to be accountable to their response as well. So in this sense, it can show action as well as police inaction. Some police officers also reported that it, it um, the potential benefit is that it, it sometimes removes the need of the victim to either provide evidence or to prepare a witness statement. So it means that there's less trauma for the survivor going forward. Absolutely. And this is a really crucial consideration, particularly when we know that criminal justice processes in particular can often exacerbate the impacts of trauma that a victim survivor might also already be experiencing. So it is really important that we're thinking about ways in which we can make the criminal prosecution process easier for victims to endure, especially for those who wish to go through it. Katie, not her real name, used to live in the same apartment complex as her former partner. 
Katie says that together with an ex-girlfriend, he came upstairs and attacked her on the veranda of her home. And my neighbours seen and called the police. This was about at midday, 1pm. And um, so the I had neighbours on the veranda looking over my veranda that seen the assault happening and called the police. So say about seven or eight hours later, the police rock up because they had thought that it was the same address in a different area, a different suburb. So they went there, it wasn't there. And so like hours later they came. And can I ask, between the time that the the neighbours called the police and the police arrived, you were in the house with the perpetrator? No, he left when my, like the neighbour was screaming out at him that she just called the police. Other neighbours came out and um, helped pull me inside and they left and I was at the house all by myself just kind of vomiting and like laying down, I was vomiting and just in shock, you know. And so the police arrived, I think, seven or eight hours later, about 8pm. Yeah, and they tried to talk me into making a statement and I wasn't ready to do that. Firstly, because I was worried about, like, it seemed to have, like, settled he hadn't come back up or anything like that. I thought, oh, maybe he'll just leave me alone now. Maybe that's the end, you know. And um, they were both um, female police officers, which would usually make you feel safer. But after they left and, and they went down and spoke to him, they came back up and said, well, we're going to put a, a police protection order against you protecting him and his ex-girlfriend and I was kind of gobsmacked. I was like, what? But my neighbour called you guys here because I got physically assaulted on my veranda in front of everyone by a man. And they were like, that doesn't, like, you know, the general conversation went like, no, but he's done this to me, what? And um, they said, well, you didn't make the statement first, so... So, so, so when they came to your door, they wanted to talk to you. Did they say, we want a statement for you? And um, they, they asked you for a statement and, and you declined. Um, and, yeah. And did you explain yeah. why you were declining at that point? No, I'm not. Uh, no, I was in so much shock. I was just, it was just reactions, you know. No, it, it was, I wasn't thinking why I didn't want to. I just knew that I didn't want to at the time, you know. And then my head did go straight towards like, oh, my God, if I do this, he's going to come and actually really get me. So you went and you got legal advice. And I believe that the lawyers at that point thought, right, let's see if there's body-worn camera footage. And they approached police and they obtained that camera footage. What, what did it show? They sent me both of the discs. It showed them talking to me and then going downstairs and talking to him and her. But it showed that they were in a very kind of aggressive, heightened state and that he, it showed, it really did show like people's kind of mannerisms and, and you can't hide body language. I mean, you'd have to be pretty a pretty good actor to hide your body language, right? And what did the footage show of you at the front door of your, of your premises? Um, it showed them the first initial and when they came and knocked on my door and I refused to give the statement. And then it showed them coming back up and giving me the protection order. And you had answered the door. So there's footage of you and, and your physical condition at that time. Yeah, yeah. It showed me. Um, I was obviously in shock. My breathing. Um, I looked like a kicked dog pretty much. 
So the attempt by police to, to um, pursue a, a kind of a, a domestic violence order against you, that was ultimately dropped. How important was the body-worn camera footage? Very important because my um, barrister had served in the police and became a police prosecutor before becoming a barrister. So he knew very well all of the boxes they had to tick, all the processes that they needed to do or hadn't done, you know, that they had or hadn't done. So having that body-worn camera was very important for him to be able to point out any process that wasn't done correctly. And so, as I understand it, um, the the legal proceedings were dropped at the the steps of the court. Yeah, on the last – I had a few court cases where they just kept on – putting it off for a month or two, you know, just trying to drag it out and wear me down so I'd just take it, I guess. That's how I felt, like they were just like trying to make, you know, hang it over my head so I just, I'd just go with it. And I was like, I didn't physically assault him. I did not go to his house and beat the heck out of him. He'd done that to me and I wasn't going to have a protection order against me that I did not deserve and I was, I was willing to fight that. Um, I don't hold any grudges against the police officers. I think their role in our society and, and our community is so important and vital, and I think it's very difficult, the job that they do. It sounds like the body-worn camera footage was really important in, in your truth emerging. Yeah, yes, very, very important. Former WA Police Inspector Darren Henstock acknowledges that body-worn cameras have an important role to play in police accountability and in training. Police officers do a really, really difficult job in really difficult situations at difficult times. And invariably, with the, the panoply of different things they have to deal with, they're going to make mistakes. And those mistakes will be will be shown by the body-worn video. It's not the body-worn video's fault that those mistakes have happened. There's a maybe a deficiency in training or maybe that officer just didn't remember at that time at that point that they should do this or they were pushed into a situation and and behaved in a certain way the benefit of the body worn video is it shows that they were in this really difficult situation at the time what was going on around them as to and you could probably understand more about why they made the decision they made at that time but certainly it it does highlight poor behavior it does make officers become a little bit more conscious of of how they operate if they've got a camera on one would hope but also it provides that really valuable training tool and and i've said for many many years and and certainly with wa police we were working with the academy to bring in that footage so that officers could then say okay well this is the footage that i had this is the what happened at the time and this is the behavior i had now i can see potentially why that person changed their behavior because of the way i behaved and and without that footage you're never going to understand how your behavior impacts someone else's behavior or really valuable for for brand new officers recruits who who see real world examples of what they're going to go and deal with and how people operate and interact and and so yeah having that ability to use body-worn video as a training tool and, and let officers actually see what's occurred, then, then that's got to be a great thing to, uh, to bring into the training scenarios. The widespread rollout of the technology is relatively new, and Dr Mary Iliadis says everyone is still on a learning curve. The thing we're yet to fully understand, and this is 
part of the aim of our study is how we can balance any potential risk against the benefit that might emerge from body-worn cameras. So understanding how we can utilise body-worn cameras in a way that prioritises victim survivors' safety and wellbeing. So we are trying to gauge the differences in how body-worn cameras are operating across Australian jurisdictions so we can start to think about some best practice mechanisms for their deployment. Deakin University criminologist Dr Mary Eliadis, who researches the impact of body-worn police cameras. That's the Law Report for this week. A big thank you to producer Christina Kukolia and also to technical producer Matthew Crawford. Don't forget the Law Report is available anytime as a podcast via the wonderful ABC Listen app. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more law. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.